Hello, this is Rabbi Mark Soloway. Welcome to A Dash of Drush, weekly reflections on our world through the lens of Torah. This week we begin Sefer Shemot, the book of Exodus, which is so full of incredibly important narratives, very different kinds of narratives in a way to the book of Genesis that we that we finished last week. And there's a, there's some seminal stories that I remember so clearly this time last year um, in an interview with a friend talking about the idea of resistance and the the Hebrew midwives and and the idea of a new a new king arising and this year we've <laughs> been through a year it's been a year this is the first week of of a new year of 2018 with all kinds of new possibilities and uh, a slightly different focus I'm I'm thinking a lot about the the idea of that burning bush story but there are so many other stories within the the book of Exodus that really define much of the Jewish experience and to have a conversation about that I'm actually very excited this this uh, week actually as a, as a guest scholar at uh, Bonne Shalom at my community we we have uh, Professor Sam Boyd who is a, a Bible professor at, at CU here in Boulder and he's going to be reflecting on, on, on some of the book of, of Exodus from, a, from an academic uh, perspective and uh, I'm sure there's lots of, of very um, important surprises that we might have in that respect because his focus has been very much on on bible as literature that's very specific to the to the ancient uh, middle east ancient near east and so i'm really delighted to introduce and welcome you dr sam boyd hello thank you hello and so we'll just have for a few minutes just a conversation about because i i think i have you know, been trained in mm-hmm. ways to see these these extraordinary narratives of the Book of Exodus, mm-hmm. in terms of what they teach us in terms of spiritual and religious traditions, and mm-hmm. and very much it's where um, the ancient Israelite nation is formed through the Exodus narrative, mm-hmm. and of course we you know we have the the ten plagues and we have the parting of the Red Sea mm-hmm. and we have revelation of the Torah on Mount Sinai all mm-hmm. all kind of in the, in this book, and so. Maybe just first, if you want to just um, share something about your your approach in in general, how you understand um, what I would call the Tanakh, what you would call the Hebrew Bible, or, yeah, and 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 then maybe specifically make some comments about the Book of Exodus, and then maybe we'll get into some specific yeah. narratives in that. Oh, thank you. Uh, a lot of what I do when I look at the Bible is I look at it as part of taking. Um, conversations of ancient literary genres that may have been lost to us. When we hear a story and somebody begins it once upon a time, it completely automatically attunes us to what type of genre we're listening to. If you pick up Harry Potter versus a newspaper, you know what different genres you're paying Mm -hmm. attention to. The ancient Near East had very similar distinctions of genres as well, but we lost those for hundreds if not thousands of years until Cipherment of Hieroglyphs in 1822, Akkadian in 1857. And we have so much access to the type of literary conventions that the Bible takes place in the ancient world now. So when I go to something like a law code uh, which uh, or a legal collection, uh, which a lot of my undergraduate students read and they think, oh, this is so boring, uh, that's actually a very important ancient genre. Uh, and it's very important to be attuned to that. And there are very subtle things that the biblical authors might be doing to those 
law codes, and um, particularly what's called the divine voicing, the fact that it doesn't come through a king, it comes straight from Yahweh, um, and Moses is uh, basically sort of just the, the mouthpiece. Um, this actually has a really interesting political uh, point that it's making. Um, so those are the types of things that I look at when I look at uh, bits and pieces of, of the Bible in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. yeah. So when you're talking about ancient law, you're talking about the Hammurabi code, which many mm -hmm. people will be familiar with. That's the, the one that that I think of immediately. I mean, that, is that the primary one, or are there many others, there parallel many, ones? There, there are many others. In fact, uh, Hammurabi was not the first. Uh, 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 it's called the Laws of Eshnuna, Lipit Ishtar, uh, or Namu, all came before Hammurabi. And Hammurabi seems to, to partake in this literary convention, taking some of the same laws, the laws of the Goring Ox, uh, for example. Um, and then those laws, like the Goring Ox, show up in Exodus chapter 21. And, and in the Talmud in massive detail. And the Talmud in massive detail, exactly. And there have been really interesting studies, especially when we look at Hammurabi and we see that his law code was never practiced, or at least not in the way that we think mm -hmm. of practice law. Uh, he uh, gave decisions that completely contradicted his law code. So what was that law code for? It was put in the back of a temple where nobody could read it. Uh, nobody could read Akkadian anyway, like 3 to 5% of the population. So... If ancient legal collections weren't practice law, what were they doing as literary convention? Uh, what sort of statements were they making? Mm. And when the authors of the book of Exodus, uh, I would say the, the law code is there, belongs to a particular source called the E-source, um, what's called the Covenant Code. Um, it very clearly, I think, has a literary relationship to Hammurabi. Um, and it seems to be partaking of the same literary genre. If it's not practice law, what is it? Uh, what is it saying? And um, um, there we find some really, really interesting things when we plug it in the ancient, ancient conventions. So the rabbinic tradition, of course, makes a very um, beautiful, I think, distinction mm -hmm. between what we call halakha, which mm -hmm. is the, the legal parts of our tradition, and agadah, which is the more narrative part of mm -hmm. our tradition. And what, what I think anyone who's studied Talmud appreciates mm -hmm. is that those two things are not... Are not it's not about them being in opposition, it's about the way in which they're woven together. Yeah. And, and, and that at times mm -hmm. when you might be in the middle of a very legalistic part of rabbinic tradition, you suddenly, it's suddenly infused with a very juicy kind of narrative, yeah. ag Agadah. So, so, so now we've had you know, that li very, very little conversation about the legal aspects. So then what about the narrative aspects? What about what we would call Agadah? So, I mean, mm -hmm. and maybe even focusing in mm -hmm. very specifically on this, the beginning of this Moses, Moses narrative, Moshe, mm -hmm. who we see born, and of course the story of him being, being um, mm -hmm. put in a, in a basket and flown down yeah. the Nile and saved by, by the, the, the princess of Egypt, the daughter of Pharaoh, and then, yeah. and then growing up and experiencing his identity and seeing the, the, the pain inflicted on the, on the Hebrew slaves and, mm -hmm. and then him fleeing after he kills an Egyptian taskmaster and then, and then the narrative that we're going to be reading, all of that we're going to be reading, but <laughs> focusing on, on, on the, the burning bush, where he's, which is kind of yeah. seen as a sort of spiritual call to action. So, yeah. so, so what, what about those narratives? <laughs> Well, I think it's interesting because the, the same connection between halakha and agadah in, in uh, rabbinic Jewish thought, we find very similar connections between narrative and law in Tanakh and Torah uh, as well. So when I divide sources, what I would do called J-E-D-N-P, there's a very interesting harmony between the narrative portions of each source and the laws that 
also are part of those sorts. J actually doesn't have a law code, but for E, D, and P, the, the narrative and the laws go together, and there's a really interesting interplay. Um, and what's fascinating is when you see uh, uh, the example of, of uh, Moses and the Teva and the Ark or the uh, basket uh, going along in, in Exodus chapter 2, this maps on into a really interesting ancient Near Eastern stories, um, the birth legend of Sargon, uh, where the king goes from like kind of rags to riches. Um, and, and this may be making a really interesting political statement here. Um, uh, Moses is sort of experiencing some of the same things growing up in the house of Pharaoh. Uh, but but rejects it. And when you get to the law code, what's really interesting is that in every other ancient Near Eastern law code, the king gives the law. Um, Hammurabi gets wisdom from Shamash, but it's ultimately Hammurabi's law. There is no king um, in, in Exodus. And, and so this may be making sort of this, this type of statement of liberation. We don't need a king. Uh, God is our king. We're free. Um, and finding that freedom and, and that experience in the, uh, the burning bush, um, it's been a very powerful narrative of, of um, liberation from bondage. I mean, Benjamin Franklin wanted Moses on American currency um, because of that that powerful story that's involved in it. Absolutely, mm -hmm. yeah. Specifically, the the burning bush, or just the general idea of seeing this narrative as like mm -hmm. the people rising up against the idea of a. a a tyrannous king. The, the general idea of sort of rising up against a tyrannous yeah. king. What's fascinating about the, the burning bush narrative um, from a sort of a critical academic perspective on the Bible is it seems like there are a lot of these traditions where uh, uh, the Israelite God is not found confined to a space. Uh, burning bush, you know, the God on the mountain. Um, there are these traditions where that God in that mountain is something more in the Arabian Peninsula, more to the south, not confined to Jerusalem, not confined to Egypt, not confined to any particular location. That's a fascinating perspective when you talk about sort of an individual reading and finding inspiration in these texts. Moses can be in the wilderness and in the most unlikely places have this experience that really calls himself to be attuned to divine presence around him. Um, Habakkuk chapter 3, I think Judges chapter 5, all have God coming from the south, not from Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. uh, he comes from Seir. He comes from um, an area where ancient Midian was, which was obviously has very important resonances for Moses. Sure. Um, there's this whole thing called the Midianite hypothesis. Um, uh, some people think that a lot of the um, mosaic Yahwism, uh, mosaic uh, um, um, uh, sort of stories and theology actually comes from um, Midian generally. Um, so more in the Arabian Peninsula. So you find these really interesting sort of resonances of divine presence where you might not expect to find them. Uh, which is really fun. So d it's so interesting yeah. to hear you, you know, here I am a rabbi and you're an academic and mm -hmm. sometimes those worlds very much come together and sometimes mm -hmm. they feel like very separate <laughs> worlds. And so to hear you talk about divine presence because of, as a rabbi I feel like yeah. my job is in some ways an interpreter of text to help people live lives that are meaningful and where we can extract like really important spiritual mm -hmm. um, and ethical lessons from the from the from the text and so the burning bush narrative is you know listening to the call or mm -hmm. or, or paying attention you know there's there's commentaries that sort of suggest that the the miracle if it is a miracle of that story wasn't that the bush mm -hmm. was burning and not consumed it was that 
Moses actually stopped what he was doing and paid attention. And, <laughs> and so I might, as a <laughs> contemporary rabbi, say we, we live in a world where <laughs> we're so distracted. We have our <laughs> cell phones bleeping at us every second, like <laughs> text messages coming in. And, and it's very rare that we actually stop to really pay attention and maybe listen to inner voices that might have instruction for us or or depending on our theological perspective, mm -hmm. outer voices and uh, the mm -hmm. call of an outside God, like waking us up to what our task might be in this world. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, my, without having ever been an academic, I mean, obviously I've studied in academic mm -hmm. environments, but yeah. like I did, you know, in rabbinical school, we did learn documentary hypothesis, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm familiar with some of the ideas. And there were times where I was kind of um, left with this, well, it's, I think it's important to know the different theories about how the Bible came into being. But as a rabbi, I, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't feel it's my job necessarily to teach that, but mm -hmm. more to mm -hmm. help um, use the text in ways that that can be inspiring to people. So mm -hmm. we've only just met, but <laughs> my sense of you is that you have quite a lot of passion about the material and that you mm -hmm. care about it, and I'm sure mm -hmm. you care about the experience that your students have. So, yeah. how would you sort of? Yeah. Um, how would you react or respond to, to what I just said in terms of the sort of tension between academia and, yeah. and religious life? That is a, um, a tension that has long been felt, obviously, in, in both uh, uh, Jewish and in, um, uh, other religious traditions when it comes to the critical study of sacred text. Uh, Solomon Schechter called uh, higher criticism, source criticism, he called it higher anti-Semitism uh, because of some of the ways in which it sort of seems to rip apart texts that have um, um, high value and esteem. I think there are ways of doing uh, critical academic study that, that are still attuned to the religious life. And, and a, a scholar at Jewish Theological Seminary, Benjamin Summer, uh, has written a lot on this and, and has uh, recently published an incredible book on the notion of revelation and authority. Uh, and he looks at uh, uh, important Jewish thinkers, uh, Heschel, uh, but he also uh, looks through the lens of JEDMP. Do different sources have different theories of um, revelation that might accord with Maimonides, that might accord with other later thinkers of Jewish thought? Um, and when you sort of tease apart these sources, one of the things that I find is comforting. I think a lot of people in religious communities struggle with religious diversity within their community. How do I belong to a religious community when somebody um, um, might not see this, things the same way that I do? knowing that the very foundational religious texts that you have have um, multiple voices already embedded in them um, is sort of comforting, I, I find. Um, um, it was never about everybody sitting around and agreeing with one another. The Bible would not have survived because uh, it wouldn't have needed to be interpreted over and over yeah. and over. And that, of course, is a great danger of fundamentalism because the, the idea that you can extract just one meaning from a text is ridiculous, and I don't... I think that's yeah. antithetical to rabbinic tradition, certainly, where there's a multiplicity yeah. of voices always. Absolutely. I mean, there are, are records of debates between uh, Hillel and Shammai, and uh, where does the halakha reside? Um, in the Tosefta, the, there's a conversation about this debate, and it says, well, it's they worked a little harder, they'd learned to agree, but then the next generation, they say, well, the halakha is with Hillel, not because he's right, but because he records Shammai's point too. Absolutely. And I think that's important. I think doing historical criticism, it allows you to sort of see those independent voices as well as part of a conversation. Uh, and there's something that's, um, whether it's it's religious or not religious, it's emboldening to the human spirit uh, to know that um, it's it's not supposed to be a conversation that ends. Um, mm. You know, and, and, and teasing it apart shows us something about 
people whose lives were threatened in the Babylonian exile. And so they had to piece all these things together. How do they do that? Um, how does something like the Exodus provide them hope um, of a return home, a liberation? Um, and that's you know, been incredibly important. Um, and even, you know, something like the the burning bush. I mean, shalna na'olecha, take off your sandals. This is holy ground, you know. <laughs> um, even for non-religious people, there's something uh, that you can kind of learn from um, the idea of, of the world around you being inhabited by things that matter um, mm -hmm. and being more attuned to that. Uh, James Kugel, who's a, a, a phenomenal author, just wrote a book uh, called The Great Shift. I haven't read it yet, <laughs> so I can't speak too much about it, uh, but I've read reviews. So I often talk about books I haven't read. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a professor of the Bible, so I, I mostly have read that one, but, uh, um, uh, but, uh, but this is one I haven't read, uh, but it, it, he talks about how when people have lost that ability to, to be attuned to the possibility of the divine. Um, how it actually affects how not only they interpret the Bible, but how they in, uh, interpret one another. Um, um, and I think there is something to that. Uh, when people interpret the Bible one way, I mm -hmm. find that their level of generosity to multiple points of views in a sacred text sometimes extends to how they treat other people. So in other words, you can, you can be a, and I, and I don't know if you define yourself no. as secular or religious, I mean, maybe... You, if you choose to, you can respond to that. But like, I think what I'm hearing in, in this is that you could be a completely secular person or mm -hmm. self-defined as a secular person, mm -hmm. but still find extraordinary meaning in these texts that help you live lives that are more meaningful and purposeful and mm -hmm. certainly ethical, because ethical values um, don't necessarily depend on on a religious belief. Is that is that fair? I think I think that's absolutely fair. And I think um, uh, when you when you look at these texts, you know, sometimes you might find I mean something like Exodus twenty one, uh, where it talks about different. Uh, there's, there's the the male slave and the female slave. I, when I read the one about the woman slave, it offends my political modern sensibilities about egalitarianism and, and equality. Mm -hmm. But knowing that. Um, um, the disparate voices that disagree with one another in the Bible are about a conversation, it also gives me liberty to disagree with that and still recognize that text as something that's framed a lot of human experience. Um, a very a very wise person once told me it's not a relationship if you can't say no. Um, <laughs> and that's true with the Bible too. Sometimes when Abraham talks to God, he says no. Oh, yeah. Really? 30 people? You'd kill the, the wicked and the righteous? There are mm -hmm. 30 righteous people? Really, God? What about 20? What mm -hmm. about 10? You know? Um, and then, of course, the great paradox. He has absolutely no questions when God tells him to go sacrifice his son. Right. <laughs> I have no idea why that is. But these are the type of things that, that invite exploration and invite you to question deep, deep things in life, whether mm -hmm. you're religious or you're not. Um, getting into the text is getting into a world of questions mm -hmm. that reverberate to the deep essence of who we are in the world. So is that true of any text? I mean, is, is there mm -hmm. something special about biblical mm -hmm. text as opposed to, I don't know, Dostoevsky or <laughs> Shakespeare? I suppose not necessarily, but I think what's fascinating about the biblical text, um, when you look at uh, uh, sort of history and, and when you look at the extent of what ancient Israel and Judah would have been, archaeologists sort of guess that the, the uh, Amichai Mazar, I think, in his archaeological textbook says the biggest extent of Israel and Judah together would have been about the size of the modern state of Vermont. Uh, yeah. Memory serves me correct. That's the sort of approximation they give. Um, the the kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Egypt and the second millennium, the Hittites dwarfed um, the Judean highlands and Jerusalem. Um, and yet all of those literatures were gone, buried, and had to be deciphered in the 19th century. They were preserved in classical authors in the Bible. And this tiny little rump state 
uh, it's their literature that survives. Um, and I think that's something that's really interesting. I don't know if it's intrinsic to the Bible, but certainly what people have done with it, the way that they've interpreted it and wrestled with it in communities, it's been key to their survival. Um, this is something that uh, Simon Shaman makes a point of in his, his um, book, The Story of the Jews. Mm-hmm. It's, it's about uh, interpretation is key to survival, wrestling with the text. Mm-hmm. Um, so. so is that even, because I mean, I would, mm-hmm. you know, and I think you used the term yourself, sacred, the, the word sacred. Mm-hmm. I mean, whether it's the sacred ground with that, you know, mm-hmm. um, the instruction for Moses to take off his shoes or, you mm-hmm. know, the, whether it's sacred ground or sacred text, there mm-hmm. is something, and obviously there's all kinds of ideas that the, the concept of kadusha of sacredness, mm-hmm. is really about distinction and separation. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, would you refer to Tanakh, to Bible, as sacred in a way that Shakespeare isn't? Um, I don't know if I would. I certainly am intrigued by the history of it. I'm certainly intrigued by what people have done with it and the way, almost more as a person who's concerned with anthropology, um, why have people been so obsessed with this text and done what they've done to it, Mm -hmm. interpreted it the way they have, preserved it the way they have, uh, maligned it the way they have. Um, Mm -hmm. um, It's more about people than maybe something intrinsic into this text. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, certainly ancient Babylonian creation myths and wisdom literature have their own sophistication. Um, In the ancient Mesopotamian world, uh, there were scholars obsessed with those texts for very similar reasons. Um, and I would say that, yeah. I mean, I, I agree yeah. with you um, that there's the, the, the human aspect is, is mm-hmm. vitally important. And I think that's as true of holy space as it is as holy, of holy text. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this whole debate, you know, mm-hmm. is Jerusalem as the sort of heart of mm-hmm. um, monotheism, if you like, and certainly the, the focus of all Jewish prayer, mm-hmm. is Jerusalem intrinsically sacred or is it sacred because it's been the focus of Jewish prayer yeah. for millennia, you know? And yeah. I think that, you know, you could say even in this narrative that we're talking about with the... Yeah the burning bush it's mm-hmm. that moment mm-hmm. of Moses just as I said before like paying more attention and so it's in that moment it becomes sacred through the human action to to, to be more willing to listen mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to be to feel that call to then eventually be you know the redeemer of the of the Israelites and the the, the, the one who takes them out of their yeah. out of their slavery yeah no absolutely and I, I mean there are things that about the the Hebrew Bible about Tanakh that are very distinct in the ancient context that sort of set it apart you don't find the combination of law and, and narrative as you find in Torah in any of the other legal codes in the ancient Near East. There's something that's kind of different about that. Um, um, and yet the ways in which it sort of still participates in, in um, you know, there are other ancient uh, literatures that call people to, to stop and pay attention and question their lives more. Um, mm. um, but the, 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 the enduring image, and I think one of the things that's really brilliant about uh, the biblical texts a guy named Eric Auerbach wrote a great essay uh, called Odysseus's Scar, where he compares. Can you the say ad- the title again? Uh, Odysseus's Scar. Odysseus's Scar. Uh, it's in a book called Mimesis, and it's the first mm. chapter, and it's a classic. And what he does is he compares Greek literature and what happens in the Iliad and the Odyssey and Homer versus the Akedah. And I think this is true for the for Exodus as well for the Burning Bush. Is it so? Um, we have all these stories that we put into there because there's so little that's told to us in the biblical account. We don't get the interiority. Um, what was Moses thinking exactly when he sees this snake, this bush, um, you know, um, on fire and not being consumed? Um, what did Abraham think 
when God said, kill your son, your only son? Do you think, well, Ish- I got another son, his name is Ishmael. He may not be here anymore, but he's still my other son. You know, it, the Bible didn't tell you that. And so it really wraps you into figuring out and wrestling with these mm-hmm. aporia, um, uh, to use the philosophical term. And, and this is why Midrash is so fun. Yeah. What, what did what did Abram do, you know, to be to be called out? Well, maybe mm-hmm. he was smashing idols. It's not there in Genesis 12. Right. But he must have done something. Right. And that's what's so fun about this text. Yeah, and I agree with you about Midrash. Midrash is, mm-hmm. is such a, a great way to, to to get deeper into the text. Well, it's been really fascinating conversation and I feel like just in a way the beginning I'm looking forward to to you know learning more from you um this this coming Friday night but uh in the meantime I just want to thank you so much very rich conversation my pleasure and I just want to suggest that you know to anybody listening that however you define yourself religiously or (laughs) in a secular way academic way um just there's an invitation to to really delve into these amazing amazing narratives and to help us um, perhaps be more um, aware of our own calling in life and to to pay more attention and to and to listen to those voices the subtle and the the coarse voices in our world and so um, wishing everybody that as a as a parting blessing and again thank you very much uh, professor Sam Boyd absolutely my pleasure thank you Thank you for listening to A Dash and Drush. We will see you next time.